Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the Word of God. But tonight I want you to turn in your Bible. You can remain seated. If you would turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and we'll also read verse 8. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 8. And it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. And skipping down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And tonight, with the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to preach to you on the topic of acting like the book of Acts. Acting like the book of Acts. The day is July 2nd, 1863. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain lies against a rudely made wall of stone. He's roughly about two miles south of the Pennsylvania town of Gettysburg. 314 other soldiers lie along this this wall. They are uh, spread thinly, and uh, they are holding a position on the Union line. Just a few weeks earlier, this beautiful ridge would have smelled of the fresh outdoor scents of summer. You would have smelled wildflowers. You would have smelled maybe some animal byproducts. (laughs) Who knows what you would have smelled? I'm sure it smelled great, though, on this this beautiful summer day. But today, Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Chamberlain of the Union Army, all that he can smell right now is the pungent scent that kind of resembled rotten eggs. It was caused by the gunpowder that was wafting through the air from the musket and the cannon fire that had been taking place over the last few days. Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain was given, the extreme, was given a task of extreme importance. He was to occupy the critical land space between two hills, big and little round top. His mission was to hold the far left flank of the Union Army line at all costs. If he and his 20th Maine Infantry Regiment did not hold this position, the entire Union position would be in jeopardy. Not more than 10 months earlier, Joshua Chamberlain was in a classroom. He was teaching modern language and rhetoric at a college, Bowdoin College. And like many others, he too sensed the, the war between the Union and the Confederate States was not close to being done. And so he felt the pressure, maybe he felt the, the patriotism to join in the fight, to fight for his state and to fight for what is right. And so here we find him, he's exhausted. He's lying against a mound, a mounded up wall of stone, along with his battered and decimated infantry unit. In the last 48 hours, they have repelled and turned back six different attacks on their position by the Confederate Alabama regiments. The status report of the 20th Maine 
and the end of the Union Army line is bleak. Ammunition is so low that even after searching the bodies of the dead, they still only have one or two shots per soldier, and some of them don't even have a single bullet to fire. The depleted 20th Maine will not be able to stop another charge on their position. Lieutenant Chamberlain is well aware of this. And then the dreaded moment happens. The eerie, blood-curling scream known as the rebel yell breaks the silence of this midsummer day. The ghostly scream resonates from down the hill, rising in a high, thin pitch as as a thousand Confederates break from the trees and charge on the Union line. Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain is at an impasse. He has a decision to make. If he does not make a decision, this could mean the entire 80,000 Union troop, the Army of the Potomac, would be, caught, would be caught from a downhill charge with no protection. And so at this moment, indecision is not an option. We will get back to Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain and see how things fare for him. But in this moment, it's quite evident that there is extreme danger and in indecision. While none of us are standing on a stone wall in the middle of a Civil War battle, for you and I today, there is also still danger and indecision. Now, we've all experienced it from one time or another in our lives. Some decisions aren't all that significant, like what you're going to eat for lunch or what you're going to wear today. Not very significant. Other things like who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, what career you're going to pursue. Those are significant. Research shows that we make an eye-popping 35,000 decisions every single day. 35,000. And about 225 of those are related to food. So since we're in the midst of the holiday season, if you were to calculate up how many, uh, how many decisions you make about food between Thanksgiving and New Year's, it's 8,775 decisions about food over the course of the next month or so. Thank God he has given us a highly intelligent brain that can observe and and assess a situation. It can process and analyze the elements and deduce what is the best or desired outcome driving the decision. And all this happens in a split second. Could you imagine what your day would be like if you had to stop and process every single decision in your day, every single one of those 35 thousand decisions. It'd be exhausting. Research also polls that it's reported that 20% of people consider themselves to be indecisive. And I'm sure that percentage would be a little bit higher, but some people taking the poll probably couldn't decide whether or not they're indecisive. Now, while we can have a good laugh about indecision, there still is a very serious element to indecision. The danger of indecision is that many times it leads to inaction. Luke 23, chapter 23, is an incredible example where the indecision of one man led to, the, led to inaction, and ultimately it affected the course of humanity. It's Luke 23, verse 13, and I'm going to read this if you want to read along. It says, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, 
You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I therefore, I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all called at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them a third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave the sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. I want to focus on this last phrase. But he delivered Jesus to their will. In the story here in Luke 23, we find a man who struggled with the decision of a lifetime. His name was Pontius Pilate. And even though he held a position of power and a position of influence, he was an indecisive man who allowed other people to make the decisions for him. Pilate grappled with the issue of what to do with Jesus and what action to take. As far as Pilate was concerned, this decision about Jesus was a lose-lose situation. If he released Jesus, he would incur the wrath of the Sanhedrin. He would probably lose his position, possibly even his life. But if he crucified Jesus, he would appease the people. But he knew he would be doing the wrong thing. Pilate's only core belief was that of self-preservation. He was a cruel man who had no issue with condemning an innocent man to be beaten, and not only beaten and scourged, but to be crucified, an innocent man. He did not believe in absolute truth. Yet standing before him that day was not just someone who had truth, but who was truth incarnate. Pilate faced the opportunity of a lifetime, but all he could think about was how to get rid of Jesus and get out of the situation. Pilate knew what was right. He knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate's wife had even sent word to him saying, don't have anything to do with this man. She knew he was innocent. And this only confirmed what he already knew. What was he going to do? He had a decision to make. But Pilate, he had his career. He had his position of power. And he did not want to sacrifice it. These Jewish leaders obviously were bent on the destruction of Jesus. So Pilate ordered a basin of water and symbolically washed his hands, declaring his innocence of the blood of Jesus. Then he he sent Jesus away to be scourged and crucified. So Pilate really knew better, but he had sold his soul for his position, for his power, and for his prestige. His indecision resulted in submitting to the pressure of those around him to to make the decision for him, And in the years that followed the death of Jesus, no doubt Pilate had many times thought about the consequences of his decision, of his 
indecision. No doubt he was aware of the rumors that were going around that Jesus had risen from the dead. No doubt he knew about that. No doubt he heard the reports of the, of the incredible things that took place on the day of Pentecost and how Jerusalem was in, a, in a, was in an uproar about that. No doubt he knew that. The Jewish historian Josephus recounts that Pontius Pilate was eventually removed from his appointed position and recalled back to Rome because he had handled, he had handled another insurrection situation with indecision and poor choice. The 4th century historian Eusebius also wrote that tradition relates that before Pontius Pilate ever made it back to Rome to stand before the emperor, he took his life due to the disgrace that he was in. Pilate paid the ultimate price for his indecision and allowing the pressure of those around him to make the decision for him. While we have a clear biblical example of the danger of indecision in Pontius Pilate's life, the New Testament is also full of examples of the opposite of indecision, which is decisive action. In fact, the title of Luke's book, Luke's book the book of Acts, is completely filled with the records of the actions that took place by the apostles. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, and I only say this because I've thought this myself, that those amazing things recorded in the book of Acts were accomplished by apostles. They were accomplished by Jesus' chosen ones. They were the pillars of the faith. They were the forefathers of the church. The expanded title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. It's not the Acts of the common folk. So, I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight. I know that everyone here is theologically advanced, with great transcendent understanding of all the, all the things in the Bible, and with great spiritual maturity. But me, I have thought these things. How are we going to see the same sort of things that we read about in the book of Acts? Well, I'm thankful for a pastor who hears from God for us and has cast a vision this year that we become a we here at the Life Church get back to being a first-century church. And I believe as we continue to strive and to imitate the first-century church and act like the book of Acts, that we will see the miracles, the outpourings, and the multiplication that the the apostles saw in that first century. Amen? And so tonight I want to present to you two two assurances uh, of how God can use ordinary people like you and me, to do the extraordinary. The disciples, before they met Jesus, were ordinary men. But Jesus equipped them with what they needed to take action to do the extraordinary. And so the first assurance is this. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are equipped with what we need to take action. Tell your neighbor, you are equipped with what you need to take action. I'm going to read John chapter 14, verse 26. And I have other, a few other verses I will skip around to read. But John 14, 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, it says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. 
And we read Acts chapter 1, verse 5 earlier, but I'll read it again. It says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was the infilling of the Holy Spirit that equipped Peter to rise up on the day of Pentecost and to address the crowd and preach the very first sermon that contained the salvation message. Peter gave the altar call, and 3,000 were baptized that day. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it records the incredible result that took place following the outpouring and the infilling of the Holy Ghost when it says that many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. These ordinary men had just been filled with the Holy Ghost just a few hours before this. And they were already doing wonders and seeing miracles take place. It had just been a few hours. I want to encourage you today that you do not need to have the Holy Ghost for an extended period of time before God can work through you. The Holy Ghost within you does not need to have residence five years, ten years, fifteen years before you see miracles and wonders in your life. The Holy Ghost power within you does not need to ripen or mature before you can lay your hands on someone and see them be healed. When Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that you shall receive power, the word power here is dunamis. We've heard pastors say many times that this dunamis power, it was dynamite power. It was an inherent power. But this word also means that it is power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. It is power for performing miracles. It is moral power and excellence of the soul. It is power and influence which belongs to riches and wealth. It is the power and resources arising from numbers. It is also the power consisting in and resting upon armies, forces, and hosts. This is what God has equipped you with when he has filled you with his Holy Ghost. He equipped you with power to take action. So each and every one of you, if you have the Holy Ghost in you, you have that power to do something extraordinary. But not only has God equipped us, but when we step out in faith, God will back us up. The second assurance that I want to, to share with you of how God can use ordinary people to do the extraordinary is that God backs up those who take action. In Acts 2, Luke records one of the first notable miracles in the early church. As was the custom of any practicing Jew living in Jerusalem, Peter, uh, the, uh, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. Now, I, I consulted with our own resident rabbi, uh, Brother Justin, and he confirmed this for me, that uh, this, this was indeed the tradition of the first century Jew and they would often go to the temple to pray twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Now, lying at the gate of the temple, Peter and John passed a lame man who had been lame from birth. And we know the story how Peter fixed his eyes on him and said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
the lame man is healed, and all the people who saw him were filled with wonder and with amazement. But what I find interesting is that Peter and John and thousands of other Jews had no doubt walked past this, this lame man lying at the, the gate numerous times, maybe sometimes multiple times in a day. They may have walked past the lame man earlier that week. They might have passed by him earlier that day. But at this moment, Peter, after being equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he decided that this day would be different. When he decided to take action, God backed him up and worked a miracle in the life of the lame man. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that many of those who heard the word spoken by Peter believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So this is shortly after this lame man was healed. Now bear with me while I do a little math. On the day of Pentecost, it says that 3,000 were added to the church in Acts chapter 2. Many wonders and signs were done through the hands of the apostles. This is through the actions of the apostles. And now after Peter's boldness to act in Acts chapter 3 and 4, the number of the men who believed came up to be around 5,000. So that's 2,000 more than the 3,000 that were baptized on the day of Pentecost. So here's what I hypothesize to you all. The biblical book of Acts, first century church formula for church multiplication is this. Ordinary people plus the power of the Holy Ghost plus the decision to act equals exponential church growth. And I believe that we will see that here in Kansas City at the Life Church. Amen? When I was working as a nurse in downtown Kansas City at one of the hospitals there, I caught word of one of my fellow co-workers. Uh, she, had, she had shared with our, our, our group that her sister was recently diagnosed with cancer in her blood. This young lady had a family. She had young children. She had the appearance of one who was healthy and took good care of herself, yet cancer is no respecter of persons. This young mother was going to face a host of treatments, scans, and procedures, none of which were ideal or carried a favorable prognosis. And as I was talking to this, the sister of this young lady with cancer, I could just feel the hopelessness and the despair and the anxiety and devastation that this, this nurse felt for her sister. That night, I went home and I shared, I shared it, the news with, with my wife, Marissa. We were determined to pray for this young mother, but we had also read in Acts chapter 19 how God works unusual, he worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them. So we grabbed one of my unused handkerchiefs, <laughs> And we prayed a prayer of faith over that handkerchief for this young lady's healing. We wrote a card explaining what we were doing and why we were sending her a, a handkerchief and an envelope. And it was, I think, a, a week later or so before I saw that nurse and could give her the card so she could then take it on to her sister. Um, and I hadn't heard anything for a few weeks. I... Uh, I the nurses that I work, we had, there, was a, there was a lot of us, and so we were cycling through, and sometimes I wouldn't see certain nurses for quite a period of time. 
Um, but I approached the sister a, l- a little while later to ask how, how uh, her sister was doing. And immediately her, her face lit up. And with joy, she relayed to me that her sister's cancer was in remission. Thank you, Jesus. And that she would need no further treatment. Now, this young lady may not ever associate or recognize the, the remission of her cancer to a small piece of cloth that was, that was given to her, to the prayers that were prayed by complete strangers. But I do know that all glory goes to God, and I believe that he did the miracle in her life. I would rather give God credit for something he didn't do than not give him credit for something he did do. Now, God may have healed this young lady, whether or not Marissa and I prayed over that handkerchief and sent it to her. But I do know that when we took that step of faith, God backed us up. I have another um, personal example. Forgive me for sharing personal examples. But when I was a freshman in college, I had a habit of sleeping with a fan right next to my head. Um, Now, you might think that's weird. And it it is weird. But I was in a dormitory in in a downtown area, uh, very noisy. And so the noise of the fan close to my head would help drown out the noise of of the ambulances and all the cars and everything. Um, So it was the only way I I found out that I could sleep. Well, one morning I woke up with this excruciating pain going up and down both both sides of my neck. and it was going down into my shoulders and even down my spine. And my roommate was out of town that weekend. And so I could, I could not even get any help to get out of bed. I literally could not move in bed. Anytime I readjusted myself, it was shooting pains up and down my, my, my neck and my spine. I laid in bed for a couple hours, and it was, pretty, it was pretty miserable. It sounds really pitiful now, talking about it. But I laid in bed for a few hours and finally worked up the courage, and I got out of bed. Uh, and I made my way um, to, to where one of the, the guys who lived next to me, his, his name was Gerald. I, I knocked on his door. He was a friend of mine. I knocked on his door. I called him. I texted him. He did not answer. He, uh, he was kind of one of my closer friends there on campus. I did not have a car on campus, and so I had no way to, of getting to a hospital if I, if I wanted to. It was too far to walk, and so I pretty much just felt like I was just going to have to walk down to uh, get out of my dormitory, call a taxi, and have them take me to an emergency room. So after knocking on Gerald's door, and Gerald, I told you he was a good friend, but he was also an apostolic believer, just like me. And it just so happened that I'm waiting for the elevator uh, to go downstairs and call a taxi. And Gerald had not answered his door. He had a tendency of sleeping in, but since he didn't answer the, the door, I figured he was probably out studying or something. And so this was a Saturday morning, <laughs> uh, but I was planning just to take a taxi, go to an emergency room to get my neck checked out. Um, waiting for the elevator, all of a sudden Gerald shows up right next to me. He, uh, <clears throat> he had looked a little bit groggy. He had some epic bedhead. But after all of my calling and texting and knocking on his door, eventually it probably just woke him up. And I explained the situation how, and he could tell, you know, I'm walking around like this. I can't move my, my head, can barely move my shoulders. And 
and I re I'll remember, I was just standing outside of the, the elevators, and I told him my plan, and he said, well, we could always do the obvious thing. And I looked at him, and I said, I know, I'm going to go downstairs, I'm going to call a taxi, and I'm going to go to the hospital. And he looked back at me, and, <laughs> and I remember, he just, he looked at me, he said, no, we could pray. And I, I like, looked at him, I, I might have given him a look, but I had already been praying. I had already been pleading with God and bargaining with him to heal me and to take away the pain, but I, I said, all right, Gerald, let's pray. And so we're standing in the commons area of a, of a college dormitory. It's a busy elevator area. And Gerald lays his hands on me, and he prays a bold prayer. And as students are walking around, probably looking at us, I don't know, I had my eyes closed really tight. <laughs> but he prayed for me, and he said, I'm going back to bed. I think you should just go back to your room and wait it out. So I was, I was like, okay. I go back to my my room, and I'm just waiting, and this might seem very insignificant, um, but this memory has stuck with me and built faith throughout my life, because it was about an hour later that I had complete relief from the pain in my neck and in my back. And I thank God for this, this healing power and for the faith of a friend to boldly take an action on my behalf, paying attention, paying no attention to anyone around and God responded to his faith, to our faith. He responded to the action of a 19-year-old college kid, and he backed him up. So those two assurances are that you have been equipped. When you have the Holy Ghost, you've been equipped with what you need to see the extraordinary. And two, God will back you up when you step out in faith and take that action. When it comes to stepping out in faith and taking action, we as humans often balk and stop short because our logic and reasoning gets in the way of our faith. Sometimes people want an explanation of how this is going to happen or how will this change the situation. Well, sometimes there isn't a 12-step process. Sometimes there isn't an instruction manual on how to achieve or accomplish something spiritually. My, my old pastor in Wisconsin used to, used to say this, he said that if we go through life needing to rationalize and understand everything, we will miss the open doors that God puts in front of us that he wants us just to step through in faith. A prayer life and our connection to Jesus will make us spiritually sensitive to the opportunities in our everyday life and to the doors that God is opening up for us. You don't have to figure out how God is going to do it. God doesn't need to give you an understanding about it. He just needs you to trust him, to step out in faith and be the hands and the feet of him by taking action. So let's return to our friend that is uh, laying next to a stone wall. Yeah, he is bunkered down with his Union troops. Lieutenant Colonel Josh, Joshua Chamberlain, he is not a career soldier. As I said, he had just joined the Army 10 months prior. He does not have a knowledge of warfare and tactics, but he was a stubborn and he was a decisive man. He had within him the inability to do nothing. Standing atop the stone wall that was providing the makeshift cover for the Union troops, Colonel Chamberlain quickly sorted through the situation. One, they could not retreat. That was not an option. They could not stay where they were. That also was not an option. And when faced with the choice of doing nothing or doing something, Joshua Chamberlain chooses to act. 
He turns his back on the charging rebels, jumps up on top of the wall, and barks out a command to his men to fix bayonets. He says, he calls out to his, to his sergeants to execute a great right wheel and swing the far side of the line, sweeping around. The order of a great right wheel is an all-out charge on the enemy. So with the power born of righteousness and fear, this schoolteacher from Maine roared to his men, Charge! 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 And that is what they did. With the Confederate troops, only about 30 yards from the stone wall where this Union line was positioned, the Union troops fixed bayonets and they poured over that wall to meet the Confederates in a charge. The unpredictable maneuver caught the Confederates completely off guard, stopping them in their tracks. Almost immediately, the Confederate forces turned and ran. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Chamberlain and the brave men of the 20th Maine won a very important fight that day. Historians will argue that this win for the 20th Maine and for the Union Army not only determined the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg, but some will argue that this skirmish that took place between Big and Little Round Top was a turning point for the entire war. The decision by one man to act, and to act now, created a ripple effect that determined the outcome of a great war and eventually the future of an entire nation. Now, we talked about the danger the danger of indecision and how danger off, the, the danger of indecision that often leads to inaction. Going back to the first century church, the first century church and the apostles, the rapidly growing group of believers in Jerusalem were characterized by the complete opposite of inaction. Luke's record of the apostles in the first century church is called the book of Acts. It is full of the actions of the apostles, and the first century church. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that the enemy of our soul, the devil, does not want man to convert his faith into action. The enemy could care less about how much man thinks about doing the work of God, how much he contemplates it, or even if he writes a book about it. The enemy would have man do anything but actually take action. No amount of piety in a man's imagination or his affections will harm the cause of evil if it is kept out of his will. But the more often man has feelings without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. The enemy understands that we as humans like to be comfortable. (laughs) I like to be comfortable. So when the time comes... When we are weighing the options of whether to act or not, the enemy will often urge us towards the path of least resistance. He will tempt us to not get out from our comfort zone. He will push us towards not taking action. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3 says, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are. Are weighed. Pastor Charles Dyson preached a sermon called Weighed Out and Weighed In. He made the statement that in order to hear God say, Well done, we must weigh the actions of our lives on God's scales of justice. Empty words 
put no pressure on the scales to record any weight. Intentions do nothing to tilt the scales. Only actions do. Abilities, our knowledge, our opportunities, while we value them very highly here on earth, abilities, knowledge, and opportunities, they're highly valued here on earth, but on God's scales, they are just weightless. It is actions that have weight. The book that Luke wrote could have been titled The Thoughts of the Apostles. He could have written about the ideas of the apostles. But no, what Luke chose to write about, the single defining characteristic of the apostles in the first century church, it was their acts. It was their actions that defined them. And that is the challenge that we have been given here at the Life Church of Kansas City, to be a first century church. The best way that we can align to that first century church is through the actions that we make, acting like the book of Acts. Now, there is an ultimate danger that is spelled, the, the ultimate danger of inaction is clearly spelled out in James chapter four seventeen. It says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not do it, to him it is sin. This is what is commonly uh, referred to as the sin of omission. But it wasn't just James who writes about this. Jesus, in his parable about the, the Good Samaritan, also addresses this. After a man had been beaten and left in need of help, the first two men that passed by, a priest and a Levite, both of them, who knew better, failed to act. The third man, a Samaritan, stopped to show compassion on the man in need. And Jesus used this example to teach that we are to likewise help those in, in need. And by doing so, he clearly communicated that it is sinful to avoid doing good, just as it is sinful to pursue what is evil. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus refers to his followers as the salt of the earth. But salt has no effect unless it comes in contact with something else. The gift of the Holy Spirit was not given to us so that we can plop down in a pew and listen to a good message a couple times a week and just sit on the dunamis power that we have within us. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, calling his followers the light of the world and telling them to shine before men so that they may see your good works or your actions, and that being to the glory of God. Have you ever seen what happens to an arm or a leg when it's been in a cast for a number of weeks, maybe a a couple months? The muscles atrophy. They, 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 they shrink, basically, due to not being used and being within the cast. There's significant muscle loss uh, to the muscle mass when that cast comes off. And my prayer, and may not ever be said of any of us here at the Life Church, that after being filled with the Holy Ghost and given this dunamis power, this dynamite spiritual power for miracles, signs, and wonders, that we sat on that power never to use it or to share it in our actions towards others. Let us not take the path of least resistance. Let us exercise our spiritual muscles and use the supernatural power as we take actions of faith. I want to repeat what Pastor said on Sunday. He said that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of adventure. The Holy Spirit is looking for an adventure. When the Spirit of God is referenced in the Old Testament, it is always referenced to the action and the movement of God. If the musicians could please come.
And if you wouldn't mind standing with me. Now, I believe that God can do amazing things through ordinary people when he empowers them through his spirit. We have two assurances today. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are equipped with what we need to take action. And secondly, God will back us up when we step out in faith and take that action. The book of Acts shows how God essentially took a group of fishermen and commoners and used them to turn the world upside down. God took a Christian-hating murderer and transformed him into the history into history's greatest Christian evangelist and author of almost half the books of the New Testament. If we try to accomplish God's work in the world on our own power, we will fail. But we have been filled with the same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost. We have the same power within us to see 3,000 baptized in a single day and many signs and wonders done with our hands, with the hands of the saints of the life church. We want to be just like that first century church. And just like pastor likes to say, start acting like the person you want to be. So that's what we have. That is our challenge. We need to act like the church that we want to be. I want to invite everyone here to the front. You may be thinking to yourself, you may have a situation or a, or a memory in your mind of, of maybe you were prompted by the Holy Ghost to, to do something. And maybe you took the comfort, comfortable way and said, ah, no, not right now, not today. But I want to encourage each and every one of you, there might be a neighbor that you are thinking of right now, an intentional conversation that you need to have with them. There might be somebody, there might be a, a loved one that you know that, that needs a Bible study. There may be somebody that lives down the street that you know is hurting. You've been looking for an opportunity to, to pray with them. But I want to encourage each and every one of you here that today is the day that we can take action. Today is the day. If you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you have the same power that those apostles had to do the same things that they saw. And so I'm going to pray over each and every one of us that we have the boldness to take action and that we would take that step of faith and allow God to back us up. Just take that step of faith and allow God to back us up and we will see the adventure that the Holy Spirit wants to go on. We will see the multiplication that we want to see here at the Life Church. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you, God, for your goodness. I thank you for that wonderful, awesome gift of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray your anointing, Lord, upon each and every one here. I pray, Lord, that you go with them, that you would give them the boldness, Lord Jesus, the prompting, God, that they know, Lord Jesus, that when they are filled with your Spirit, they have everything they need, Lord Jesus, to step out in faith, and you will back them up, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your presence. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the power that you've put within us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Jesus. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be praised. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are worthy, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy to be praised. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details. Thank you.